0: Good morning. We're reading this morning from Genesis chapter 22, uh, verses 1 through 19. And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both, so they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, And laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide as it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said by myself I have sworn declares the Lord because you have done this and have not withheld your son your only son I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose And went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We've been following Abraham's and Sarah's life. Through the book of Genesis. As they walk with this God who reached out to them and called them to a new life. And it seems if you've been following us. Since Gen- following along with us since Genesis chapter 12, all apparent threats to their stability had been removed. Pharaoh, famine, their nephew Lot, Sarah's barrenness, Ishmael, Abraham's half-son, Abimelech, the local king, which we learn about just prior to this. All apparent threats had been removed, and we finally now see some stability late, late in their lives finally living almost in peace and quiet. They're in Beersheba. They even have a claim to their own well. They were able to negotiate that they own their own well. So they're still aliens. They're strangers. But they're settled strangers. And their son Isaac was growing up. So finally, late in their lives, they seem to have settled down. And then God puts them through this. This horrible ordeal. At least it seems horrible. When we read this, we're horrified, aren't we? Now, I would say this. Look, in ancient religions, child sacrifice wasn't uncommon. So Abraham wasn't shocked like you and I are shocked when we read something like this. The idea of cultic child sacrifice It was kind of common to the ancients. I don't think that surprised Abraham at all. By the way, our culture does it by a different name. I think the real problem for Abraham, the crisis Abraham and Sarah face, is more so this, that Isaac was the child of the promise. But Isaac is their heir. Isaac is the one, as God had said to Abraham, through whom your offspring will be reckoned. Through Isaac would God bless him. Through Isaac would God bless all of the world. And that is the crisis at this point for Abraham and Sarah. This boy is the child of God's explicit promise to us and through us to the world. So after struggling for for literally decades to believe that Isaac was the child of the promise. Struggling but persevering in faith to trust God in that this boy was God's promise to them, and through this boy, and through their offspring, would God bless the world? After all of that, in verse 2, God, uh, Abraham hears the words from God, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. See, the narrator is really, he's really pressing in on us. Your only son, whom you love. Take him and sacrifice him to me. Did God ever give you something And then take it away from you. God ever give you a person. Or I don't know. Something. Maybe an idea. Maybe a dream. And you felt it was from God. And you were convinced it was from God. And then took it away. And you can relate. You can relate to the loss. You can relate to the fear. Of losing what's precious. Of losing who is precious to you. Can't you? Now, I think what is most significant about Genesis chapter 22 is not God testing Abraham. That's where we start. That's what freaks us out. But I think as you read the story, as you read the account, what is most significant, what Genesis wants us to understand is not that God tested Abraham, but that Abraham passed the test. That's what we have to start thinking about right now. And what we see again through Abraham and Sarah struggling to believe God is another picture of what biblical faith actually is. What it means to say you're a Christian. What it means to say you trust and follow the God of the Bible. And what we see today is that what God promises to give us is greater than what we might end up losing. And today I want to talk to you about the things that we're afraid of losing. Talk to you about the sacrifices That you and I don't want to make. Now Abraham and Sarah had been making sacrifices their entire life. Do you remember? For decades. For decades God had been testing them. This is really nothing new. Many times over God required them to give up what they knew. Who they knew. Forfeit their home. Forfeit their personal safety and their comfort. In order to follow him. In order to trust him. And let me just ask you. What are some of those things? What are some of the things that Abraham and Sarah had to give up? What are some of the ways in which they've been tested in their lives up until this point? What, do you, what are some? What do you remember? Yeah. They had to leave their family in Ur. Yeah, they became lifelong resident aliens. It didn't matter where they moved. They were always strangers wherever they lived. It didn't matter how successful they became. They were always outsiders. What else? How were they tested? What do they have to give up? yeah they they couldn't conceive now in their ancient traditional culture not being able to be a mother and not to have an heir that was almost humiliating and on top of that you have God saying hey I'm going to give you an heir yeah that was a test that was a constant struggle what else Great. Okay, so Abraham was devoted to his nephew Lot. Lot kept making bad decisions and Abraham kept risking everything to get Lot out of those predicaments he was in. Even even to the point of waging war. Abraham risked everything for Lot more than once. Yeah, great. Any others? A couple of other thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, Sarah was a, a beautiful woman. It was physically a beautiful woman. And so everywhere they went, she was noticed. And that was a constant threat. And that caused all sorts of problems in Egypt, right? And then it, it caused more problems later with the little king Abimelech. Yeah, Yeah, any, any others? Maybe one or two more. How were they tested? What did they have to sacrifice and give up? Don't forget a big one, Ishmael. Now, Ishmael was the promise Abraham and Sarah's own way. And it didn't work out. And in the end, Abraham had to say goodbye. Abraham had to give up his half, basically his illegitimate son whom he loved, Ishmael. So testing is really nothing new for Abraham and Sarah. This was another test in a long progression of learning to live by faith. But this was the greatest test. And in this test, revealed to us is Abraham in a most mature position. This is not the Abraham who fled to Egypt because of a famine and who lied about who he was and who Sarah was because they were afraid for their own safety. This is an Abraham who reveals within himself a most mature faith. And the narrator keeps hinting at this, that Abraham believed that God would somehow despite the command, would somehow save the day. Look at verse 5. When Abraham, they finally get to the mountain, to Moriah. And Abraham says to his servants, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you again. Furthermore, when when Isaac finally realizes, Hey, Dad, I, I see everything for... I see it all for the fire and the sacrifice... Where's the lamb, dad? And Abraham says in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now, the word there, provide, it's more nuanced than we pick up in the English language because the original Hebrew word didn't mean to provide. It didn't mean to provide at all. It meant to see. He was saying God will see for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. That sounds kind of strange to us. This is what scholars basically think. What Abraham is trying to say, God will see to it. Isaac says, something's missing in the procedure, dad. Abraham is saying, son, God will see to it. Or another way of saying it is, son, God will make it clear. Abraham finally, in the twilight of his life, finally trusts that God's ways, despite what things look like on the ground, that God's ways are far better than his own. And the New Testament corroborates with this concept, this idea that Abraham somehow believed that God was going to save the day and that Isaac would somehow be restored to him. Because the author of Hebrews said, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. It's not for people to know how God is going to provide, but that he will provide. Not only do we see Abraham and his faith, not only do we see in this testing time Abraham's faith revealed to us, we see Isaac's faith, I think, as well. Because notice there's no hint of struggle from the young man. Like a lamb, he's silent. In what his father's about to do. Apparently Abraham's faith. Was influencing his son. Now what did the father and the son discover. Through their obedience. What did they learn from this testing. I think what they see. What they discover is that there is no limit. There is no limit. To God's provision. There is no limit. To what God is able to do the. The the height and depth and breadth of God's provision is beyond measure. Now, by surrendering everything, think about this. They could have run. They could have hid. They could have fought. They could have altered the plan, which Abraham had done before. They could have just refused. But by doing any of that, they lose everything. Everything. Do you see that by trying to protect what they have they lose it all by surrendering everything they gained everything and what they gain is knowing God truly knowing that God is gracious that God is merciful that God is abundantly generous if they run, if they hide, if they reject him, if they disobey him, if they alter the plan, they lose all of that. They supposedly keep themselves, but they lose the experience of truly knowing that God was prepared to provide all along. So the greatest test produces the greatest reward. Now, I I know that some of you are still not convinced that this is so great. Uh, you're still thinking, this is really a horrible thing. Okay, that's, that's understandable. Look, uh, God's testing of us, the, the, the losses that you've endured in your life, the sacrifices that your creator asks you and requires you to make, this testing of God is neither pointless nor cruel. God does not put you through anything for no reason. And he certainly doesn't do it because he's cruel. Look at verse 12. Abraham is is ready to sacrifice his son. And the narrator draws the conflict out. And it's the climactic point of the scene. And then he hears God speaking to him. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now at this point, are you thinking, well, maybe God was ignorant. Did God put Abraham through this because God had no idea what Abraham would do? Um, I really don't know if Abraham trusts me after all this time. I don't know if he cares. I don't know if he loves me. I'm going to whip something up to see what he's going to do. But God of the Bible is not like that. God knows exactly what Abraham's going to do. God knows what he himself is going to do. So why put Abraham through this? Well, don't forget that the Bible describes God often as a parent, as a loving father. Now, what do, you, what do you do as a parent when you're thinking about whether or not your children love you? Now, you know this as a parent. You may intellectually think that your children love you, but isn't it so much better to experience it? You may know know that your kids love you, but what happens when your preschooler comes home and hands you a piece of paper and says, Daddy, this is you and me. And you look at yourself and you're this amoeba of a thing. You're this horrific blob. It doesn't look anything like you. But your heart is overflowing because that's the proof that your child loves you. Daddy, I made this for you. I love you. Look, it's you and me. Isn't isn't experiencing the love that your child has for you isn't that deeper than the the intellectual knowledge that your children probably love you? What about a teenager? Imagine this: What happens when a teenager? When you you ask them to do something, when you simply say, "I need this to be done," or "You need to do this," and they simply, without arguing, without complaining, without convincing you of a better way, they simply do it. Isn't it a blessing? in that moment of obedience, for you to know that your child just trusts you. It's no different with God, our Heavenly Father. God not only knows whether or not we trust Him and whether or not we love Him, but God, as a relational God, experiences and enjoys the experience of seeing us trust Him. And not only is it for uh, for, uh, for him, it's for us. I want you to think about that. But this test, this test was so that Abraham, not God, but Abraham could discover the contents of his faith. So that Abraham could see the quality of his faith. I remember 10 years ago, I found myself in a hospital bed uh, by myself, waiting to go into extensive major surgery. And if you've been through that sort of thing, you know things start creeping into your mind. Will I wake up at the end of the surgery? And if I am blessed to wake up from this procedure, what will my life look like? Will it be changed forever? Will I, have to get, will I wake up and find out that things are far worse than I thought they were? Will I wake up and find out that I and the people around me will have to give up so much more than we already have? And what I discovered in that moment by myself in a bed was the presence of God giving me peace. I had always feared that major surgery or a major disease would cause me to lose my faith for whatever reason ever since a kid. Oh, I could never go through something like that. And there I was and I discovered that God was with me and I had total peace from him and I discovered I wasn't afraid of dying and I wasn't afraid of sickness. And I trusted him with the people in my life that he would that he would see to it that he would take care of them and it was in that it was in that moment that i discovered the contents of my faith god knew that the testing convinced me of it because i don't think i really knew the contents of my faith until i was tested james in James chapter 1, talks about this. He says, this is why God tests us. The testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance has to finish its work so that you can be mature and complete and not lacking anything. You've heard people say, adversity builds character. I'm not sure I believe that anymore. I think that's partly true, but it's not always true because adversity Adversity will always change you, but sometimes adversity makes people far worse than they ever were before. Far more angry, far more bitter, far more afraid. Adversity doesn't necessarily build character, but it absolutely reveals character. Adversity will always reveal the contents of what's inside of you. I would look at it this way when you squeeze a can, when you squeeze a tube of toothpaste, what toothpaste comes out when you are squeezed, the contents of your life come out. Frankly, for you to see. Think about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, you'll have to forgive me. I was raised in the previous century. So I think of the Gene Wilder version of the movie. And of course, the book is even older. Um, but think about think about Willy Wonka. All right, so Willy Wonka invites all these kids and their parents and grandparents into his factory, and he puts them through a grueling series of ridiculous tests. The tests get increasingly more and more difficult, and kids and grandparents and parents are dropping like flies, right? One kid after another or their parents, they keep, they keep failing at some point, right? They don't, they don't pass the test. And who remembers what was the, what was the greatest test Near the very end. What was the greatest test of all? It had nothing to do with chocolate. What was it? Okay, yeah, yeah, you're on to it. So the greatest test of all was if you can steal the everlasting gobstopper from the factory and give it to somebody else, you'll be rich. That was the greatest test. And Charlie was the only one who refused to do that. Charlie was the only one who passed Willy Wonka's ultimate test. And and then you find out the reason Willy Wonka had the competition in the first place is he was looking for somebody with a pure heart. He was looking for somebody to take over his factory and take care of his Oompa Loompas and everything that he cared about. And so what you discover is Willy Wonka didn't put Charlie through all of that testing because Willy Wonka was cruel. It's because Willy Wonka was good. And he was looking for somebody he could trust to share in all that he had. And it's very much like that with God. The author of Hebrews, again, says that God disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Now, what, what has your testing revealed about your faith? As you have struggled with adversity and loss In your life, as you have been tested, what has God seen come out of you? What are the contents of your faith in your Creator? Are you afraid of losing somebody or something, or are you afraid of losing even more than what you've already lost? Unless you surrender what you cherish and treasure, you'll never know God's greatest blessings. Unless you give up what is most important to you, who is most important to you, you will never discover who God truly is and receive his greatest blessings. Phil Vischer uh, founded uh, the the production company uh, Big Idea. And if you're familiar with the Veggie Tales series, that's Big Idea Productions. Uh, Phil Vischer was a gift, is still alive. He's a gifted storyteller, uh, very gifted. And he, over the years, over the 1990s, Phil Vischer basically built the largest animation studio between the two coasts. Not including Hollywood and Disney and New York and L.A., not including the coasts. Phil Vischer, Big Idea Productions, was the biggest animation studio. And uh, people started comparing him to Walt Disney and telling him and telling one another, this guy is the next Walt Disney. And Phil Vischer, addressing college students years ago at Wheaton College in Illinois, talked about how he lost the entire thing. He built it up. He believed it was something God had given to him. He was doing it for God. It was growing. And he told a story of how he lost all of it. How God had given him something, had been in that thing, and then taken that thing away from him. And he said to the students, if God gives you a dream and the dream comes to life, and God shows up in it, and then the dream dies, it may be that God wants you. to see, God wants to see what is more important to you the dream or him. And at this very point, my friends, at this very point in your struggle between your creator and your dream, whether that dream is an idea or a thing or a person in the struggle between in in the struggle in your heart between your creator and that thing that you cherish the most is when your creator most can relate to you. It is in that struggle at this very point that God perfectly relates to your sacrifice to your loss. It was in verse 13 that Abraham, once the Lord said, stop, stop, stop. Don't lay a finger on the boy. I know you trust me. I know you trust me now. At that moment, the author of Genesis tells us that, he, that Abraham looked up and he saw nearby a ram caught in a bush, caught, caught in a thicket, and that was God's provision. That is how God saw to the predicament. And that, that lamb became a substitute for Isaac on that altar. And so you see in that moment the focus shift in Abraham and Sarah's life. You see the focus shift from Isaac and protecting Isaac and worrying about Isaac to seeing God provide. That's where we now, as we read the story of their lives, see, wait a minute. I've been looking at the whole thing the wrong way. It hasn't really been about Isaac at all. It's been about God's promise to provide. It's God who is going to provide the blessing for all nations. And 2,000 years later, Jesus would go into the Jordan River to be baptized by his cousin John. And in that moment, a voice came out from heaven according to the gospel of Matthew. And the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. John the Baptist, his cousin, knew exactly what he had come to do. And he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, scholars say that Moriah is where Jerusalem was eventually built where the temple eventually was built. And you know, just outside of that temple mount were three Roman crosses. And so 2,000 years, about 2,000 years after that lamb took Isaac's place on the altar, the Son of God became the Lamb of God to come in, to sweep in at the very last minute and serve as a substitute for you. So that by faith in him, Abraham's true seed, none of us have to lay on that altar. For God to be worshipped by humanity, none of us have to lay on that altar. Because Jesus laid himself upon it. When you look at Jesus, my friends, you discover that there's no limit to God's provision for you. It's not the thing you lost returned to you. It's Jesus. It's a picture of who Jesus is, of what Jesus tells us about who the nature of our creator, what the nature of our creator actually is. It's it's when you discover that, that you're finally able to surrender in obedience to him. And you you only discover who God truly is like Abraham did, like Isaac did, by total surrender, by total submission, by being willing to give up what is most important to you. Your focus has to shift off of what you're afraid of losing, who you're afraid of losing onto God and his ability to provide for you, ultimately seen in Jesus. Do we not see this? Are we not getting this? It's all over the Bible. Look at look at Psalm 16. We just read it together this morning. Where David said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Who's the inheritance? Do you not see it? We're following Abraham. We're following Isaac. We're following Sarah. Keeps promising that they're going to have a family. We're worried about what's going to happen to Isaac. In the end, you discover that Isaac really isn't the promise. It's God. God. Abraham's reward is not getting to keep Isaac, it's knowing God more. It's like God's finally say, hey, I'm the reward. It, when you walk with me, you get me. That's what Abraham is learning, that's what he's learning to do, to say, my greatest reward is you. It's not the thing, it's not Isaac, it's not the land. The thing you're focusing on, the people you're focusing on, the ideas, the goals, the dreams that you're focusing on, that you're desperately afraid you're going to lose, that you're trying to hold on to, it's not any of that. God is saying to you, it's me. You get me. That's my gift to humanity. Reconciliation with me. I like to think of it in terms of the movie *You've Got Mail*. I I always love watching *You've Got Mail* with Tom Hanks and um, come on, Meg Ryan. Thank you. How did I forget that? So so you have Joe Fox and Kathleen Kelly, and and what they don't know about each other is that they they met online, and they they fall in love with each other's personality. This is in the '90s, so it was like dial-up modems and all that stuff and and they fall in love with each other's personality because they're they're basically chat room buddies and and they really draw they become attracted to one another and then they meet but they don't know they don't know that 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 they're they're each the pe- the, the person that they've come to know on the internet and they meet and they hate each other and they're mortal enemies and they don't, know that they're secret. they don't know that they're internet pen pals. But in person, face-to-face, they hate one another. And then Joe Fox discovers, this is my internet pen pal. He doesn't tell her. Only Joe knows. Kathleen doesn't know. And so Joe starts trying and failing to woo her for face-to-face to himself. And what happens is these, these mortal enemies become friends. And they become good friends, but Kathleen still has no idea that this is the guy from the internet that she's desperate to meet. Eventually, Joe encourages her, you really should meet this guy. So she finally, after a very long time, uh, develops the courage to meet him, and they finally meet face-to-face. He's been preparing her this whole time. They meet face-to-face, and, and I love the scene. Uh, she walks into Riverside Park, and she just sees, she's waiting for the guy to appear, the man of her dreams, and it's Joe. It's just Joe, who was her enemy originally. And he just stands there with his arms open with this face as if to say, it, it, it's just me. It's just me after all. It's just, it's me. I'm, I'm the one, the guy you hated, it's me. You've been learning how to trust me all this time. And she says to him in that moment when they finally embrace, see, she had to learn how to trust him in order to embrace him. And when they embrace, she says to him, I wanted it to be you. I wanted it to be you so badly. And that's the way it is with the human heart and God. Deep down, I believe that you know, whether you don't love God and you're not a Christian or whether you're walking with him, but at times it is a real struggle to trust him. Deep down, we all know, in the end, it's got to be God. It has to be him. Nothing and no one else will satisfy us. It really has to be God. We desperately want it to be God, but we're not even willing to admit it to ourselves. We suppress that desire. We suppress that knowledge. And we cling to what we love and to what we cherish. And God is saying, it is me. You know it's me. And Augustine said that our hearts are restless until we find our joy in God alone. I have no good apart from you. So faith, biblical faith, it's really believing that God's promises, that what he offers to give us is far greater than what we ever might lose. And ultimately, God's promises are summed up in this, you get him. And when you look at Jesus, you realize God has given himself to me. Phil Vischer also said, talking about his broken dream, it may be that God wants to see what is more important to you, your dream or him. And once he has seen that, you may get back your dream or you may not. And you may live the rest of your life without it. But that will be okay. Because you'll have God. Forsake what you cherish. Whatever you're thinking about, give it up. Maybe that will involve something very practical and physical. Maybe it's simply a process and a transaction that needs to take place in your soul. I don't know. You do. But whatever you cherish, give it up.